Well, as you know, as a church, you are currently working through the book of John. And your pastor has given me the passage today from John chapter 3, verses 20, 22 to 36, uh, to unpack and explain today uh, also. Our message today is going to focus on some important words from John the Baptist and specifically about how to respond to jealousy. Now, before we begin our examination of the text, I just want to have a quick look at John the Baptist himself. Aside from Jesus, John the Baptist is one of the most important people in the Gospels. His birth is meticulously recorded because his parents were advanced in years. His conception was the product of miraculous in, in intervention. When the angel Gabriel announced to a stunned Zechariah that his long-held prayer for a son had been heard, he announced that the, the promised son was, in the words of Luke 1, verse number 17, or would be, a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. John's formative years were lived in obscurity in the wilderness. And according to Luke 1, verse 80, it records that his clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and his food consisted of locusts and wild honey. Now, I've eaten some pretty bizarre things in the countries of the world, but I've never eaten locusts and wild honey. And according to the prophecies in Isaiah, John's clear mandate was to be the forerunner and prepare people for the coming Messiah. The central theme of his ministry is found in Matthew 3, verse 2, which records, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of God is near. He was called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer because his practice was to baptize those who responded to the message that he had proclaimed and sincerely repented of their sins. But John was no crowd pleaser. He confronted the hypocrisy of the religious establishment, warning that judgment was at hand and that God would wield his axe on unfruitful trees. And he called for authentic repentance. He called for the fruit of repentance to be evidenced in practical ways. For example, to the crowds, he called them to share with those in need. To the tax collectors, he called them to eliminate corruption. And to soldiers, he called them to prohibit extortion. And John's public ministry ended nearly 400 years of prophetic silence. He was the last Old Testament pre-Christian prophet. And Jesus spoke about John the Baptist and said in Matthew 11, 11, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John heralded the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. He was a truly transitional person forming the link between the Old and New Testaments. And now we begin our focus on John the Baptist in John's gospel. And I love how John begins his gospel. In John 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 4, it says, In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And just after that, we are introduced to John the Baptist. And in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we read there, God sent a man. 
John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Later in that chapter, John 1, the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants to ask John, who are you? And John replied, well, I am not the Messiah, nor Elijah. And toward the end of, of, of that dialogue, John boldly proclaimed in the words of Isaiah the prophet, uh, John 1 verse, verse number 23, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. So he was preparing the way for the one who would come after him, who he said in John 1, verse number 27, I am not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. Now, please remember also that many people think that John the Baptist was an old man. But please remember, he was only six months older than Jesus himself. So in all likelihood, he was about 30 when this story happened, or, thir- or 31 at the very eldest. And with all of that background in mind, allow me to read the text to you today uh, from John 3, verses 22 to 36. It reads like this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now, John was also baptising at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And to this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from above is above all. And he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. To him God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son does not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Let's begin to unpack this text and apply it to our lives. Verse number 22 of our text starts off with, after this. And we have to ask the question, after what? Well, if, if you look at the previous section, Jesus had had this illuminating and revealing conversation with Nicodemus. And as part of, the, of that conversation, we notice a few really important, well-known sayings. John 3 verse 7, you must be born again. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. 
What a powerful conversation these two men had. So verse number 22 of our text says, after this, after the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. So Jesus has led the disciples away from Jerusalem on a, on a tour of the Judean countryside. And it says, where he spent time with them, which gives us the impression that this was an unhurried period where Jesus and his followers were getting to know each other. And we find out in chapter 4 and verse 2 that it wasn't actually Jesus who was baptising people, but his disciples. But what is important here in the story was that there was a perception or there was a report that Jesus was baptising. And from this point in the story, the spotlight shifts from Jesus across to John the Baptist. For in verse number 23, it says, Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to him to be baptized. John the Baptist's ministry was flourishing. People from all across the Jordan Valley and beyond were coming to him to be baptized. And in verse number 24, it tells us in brackets, this was before John was put in prison. Because later on, John would fearlessly expose Herod Antipas's sin of marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, and John rebuked him for all the other evil things that he was doing. Well, Antipas was not impressed and had him imprisoned. But that story took place later. But then back, back to our story, in verse number 25 it says, An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Evidently, there was a man who took exception to John's requirement that baptism was necessary as a sign of repentance. And a dispute broke out about the differing views of ceremonial washings for purification. And we deduce that during this exchange, the unnamed Jew told John's disciples that Jesus was baptizing. And this aroused jealousy in John's disciples because Jesus, in their minds, was getting more disciples than John. And that's where we come to verse number 26, which is the pivotal verse to understand the whole text. Verse number 26 says, They came to John and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, while well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, I want you to notice here how John's disciples described Jesus. They said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about. So before we go any further, let's go back to John 1 and see what happened. A day after some priests had questioned John, Jesus came to John to be baptised by him. And John declared those famous words, John 1, verse number 29, Oh, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he saw Jesus, behold, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was tantamount to saying, here is the long-awaited Messiah. And in verse number 30, he, he, he continued and said, He is the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. Presumably, 
John had known Jesus as one of his relatives, but had never recognized him as the Messiah before this moment. But how did John know that Jesus was the Messiah? Verse number 32 of chapter 1 tells us, For he testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. Up until that point, John the Baptist did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. But in verse number 33 of chapter 1, he went on to explain that when God first called him to baptize people, God said to him, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Then John said, verse number 34, I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. So John clearly stated that his role was to testify, to bear witness, to prepare the way for the chosen one, the Messiah who was to come. Now, please keep all that in mind. So John's disciples had just been saying to John, uh, John, that man that you, you bore witness to on the other side of the Jordan, verse number 26, they said, while he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. In other words, we're potentially losing our popularity. Everyone is going to him. And the underlying issue here is jealousy. And they were looking to John to see how he would respond to Jesus being, being raised up. But there was no rivalry in the heart of John the Baptist towards Jesus and no rivalry in Jesus toward John the Baptist. And listen to how John the Baptist replied. Verse number 27, a man can receive only what is given to him from heaven. And from heaven is another way of saying from God. In other words, we can only do what we are called to do with the grace that God has given us. We cannot be or do anything that God has not gifted or called or graced us to do. And may we be content with who we are and what we are called to do. Let's not compare ourselves with others. Let us not be envious of others. Let us not be jealous of others. But let us live in the grace that God has given us and do all within our power by his enabling to serve him within the sphere that God has planted us. He said, a man can only receive what is given to him from heaven. Then he said, verse, verse, verse number 28, you yourselves can testify I am that I have said, I am not the, the, the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. John stated many times he was not the Messiah. But his role was to prepare the people for the coming of, of Messiah. And now that he knew who the Messiah was, he would be boldly calling people to prepare for him. Verse number 29, he goes on to say, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. The friend of the bridegroom in those days is the equivalent of a modern day best man. And his role in those days was to organize logistics and preparations for the wedding. And he would announce when the bridegroom had come. And his joy would be complete when the bridegroom had arrived. His job had been done. 
His role was to ensure that the bridegroom was united with his bride. And when he saw them together, he had fulfilled his purpose. The bride, the best man doesn't seek preeminence. That belongs to the groom when he's with his bride. It is not the best man's day. It is the groom's day. So when John heard that Jesus, the bridegroom, was being surrounded by people, he realized his job was being done. The reference to Jesus as a bridegroom has echoes in the Old Testament where there are many passages that that depict Israel as God's bride. And it anticipates New Testament teaching on Jesus, the bridegroom of the church. And so John was filled with joy, not rivalry, when he heard that people were going to Jesus. And the result of that was that John then stated some very powerful words in verse number 30 that should become the motto of every Christian. He must become greater. I must become less. And it was like John, 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 John was saying here, now that he, the groom, has arrived, my role uh, will, will decrease, his role will increase. His followers must become more. My followers must become less. He must become more important. I must become less important. He must move to the centre of the stage. I must move to the wings. But what does this story mean for us? How does this apply to us and to our lives here today? Well, as I mentioned before, the primary problem within this passage is jealousy. Similarly, whenever we become jealous of someone's success or prosperity or opportunity or status or popularity, there are some principles that we need to apply to our lives to help us to overcome jealousy in our own world. Number one is this, don't Compare yourself with others. If we are to overcome jealousy, number one, don't compare yourself with others. For John said, verse number 27, a man can receive only what is given to him from heaven. And what we need to do today is to recognize the grace that God has given us from God to do what he has uniquely called and gifted us to do. Let us today be content with who we are and what we are called to do. May we today know who we are in Him and what He has called us to do and what we are not called to do. And I would urge you, whatever God has put in your hand to do, do it with all of your heart. Do it with all of your energy and don't compare yourself. Oh, if only I had their opportunities. Oh, if only I had their money. Oh, if only the pastor would see me like that. May we be people who don't compare ourselves. Number two, a second way to overcome jealousy we learn from John's words here, uh, help others achieve what they are called to do. Help others achieve what they are called to do. Verse number 29, the friend who attends him, the bridegroom, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And may we also derive joy from encouraging, equipping and serving others for their role in God's purposes for their lives. 
But often what we do is we just think about us all the time. Whereas John recognized his sole ministry was to prepare the way for someone else to do what God had called them to do. And may we apply that to our lives as well. If we want to overcome the power of jealousy is to recognize that we can do a lot to help others succeed in what God has called them to do. Let's not measure our success by how the world measures success, which is prominence, prosperity, and popularity. The way that we should measure success before the Lord is by service, sacrifice, and selflessness. As we serve, as we give, as we selflessly help help others, we're doing what God has called us to do. I remember uh, back in the early 1990s when I had very long dark hair. And I was the state, state director of a, of a ministry here in Victoria called Youth Alive, which was a very big organisation. And we had outgrown the second biggest indoor stadium in Melbourne, which was called the Sport and, and Entertainment Centre. But I felt that my season was finished. It was time to hand across to a new generation of leader who, who were coming through. The next venue was the Rod Laver Arena, where they hold the Australian Tennis Open. It holds 12,000 people. And the very first event in, in that stadium had 9,000 young people. And I sat there and my heart was deeply moved as I saw thousands of young people worshipping God and so many people went forward that night to give their life to Jesus. And what, one of our sponsors, a business person, he, he tapped me on the shoulder and he goes, how are you feeling about seeing all these young, young people here tonight? Aren't you sad that this was your dream? Aren't you sad that, that you, you are no longer leading this? And I said to him, no, not at all. I'm filled with joy. I want the new generation to climb on my shoulders and to go further and to go higher than I ever have. I am filled with joy. And in the same way, friends, I pray that we would recognize our role is to help others do what God has called them to do. So rather than be jealous, let's rejoice with others as they grow further and on in the things of God. And number three, last one. A third thing we learn from John the Baptist about how we can overcome the power of jealousy, thirdly, is to continue to testify to who Jesus is. To continue to testify to who Jesus is. And we draw these words from verses 31 to 36. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is if we are to overcome jealousy, we have got to live a Jesus-centered life and continue to get on with bearing witness to others of who Jesus is and what He's done in our life. Because when your life is centered around Jesus, you haven't got time for trivial jealousies inside of our heart. Listen to what John said. Verse number 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. John recognized his limitations as one from the earth, who, even though he was appointed and anointed by God, can only speak from an earthly perspective. But John was saying, Jesus has no such restraints. 
Jesus has no limitations, for Jesus comes from above. In other words, he has a divine origin. And even though Jesus came as fully man, he never ceased to be fully God. And as such, he is above all. He is greater than all. He is higher than all. And back in chapter 1, verse 3, it declares there, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Everything that is, is the result of his creative power, his spoken word, and divine will. And then even further, through his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, he now reigns as sovereign king and righteous judge with absolute authority and dominion. And friends, when you start declaring who Jesus is, you won't care about what another person is doing. You will not have jealousy inside of your heart that he is above all. Then John went on to say, verse number 32, he testifies to what he's seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. And this echoes the words of Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus. Just, just go back a little bit in this chapter to verse 11, where he spoke to, 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 to Nicodemus and said, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. Jesus spoke the truth. He spoke of what he knew. He didn't just speak theoretical or philosophical argument. He spoke of the realities of things that are greater than the range of human thought. He spoke of his experience as one who came from heaven. He spoke as one who knew what he was talking about. And yet people still did not believe him. But in contrast, In the second part of verse number 33, John went on to say, but the man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. When you believe what Jesus has said, you know beyond all doubt that it is truth. We are accepting what God has said. We are recognizing the heavenly origin of Jesus. We are acknowledging the gods of God's revelation in Jesus. We proclaim with deep conviction that God and His Word are true. We certify it as authentic, like a seal on a document. We are saying, though others don't believe, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and His words are true. Verse number 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God and to him God gives the spirit without limit. So John is testifying here that when Jesus spoke, he spoke the very words that the Father had given him. And because he was sent by God, he spoke the very words of God. And as a result of that, God gave him the spirit without measure or limitation. And listen to about the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. He was divinely conceived by the Holy Spirit within Mary's womb. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Spirit. He was anointed by the Spirit. He spoke and taught by the Spirit. He healed the sick by the Spirit. He cast out evil spirits by the Spirit. And we know a little bit later, He was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And we must remember today in our lives, we have been born again by the Spirit of God. Jesus now lives within us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the indwelling of the Spirit is the assurance that we have eternal life and we will be raised from the dead. The Spirit strengthens us and empowers us to live the Christian life. He enables us to pray, witness and serve. He guides us into all truth. He reminds us of the words of Jesus. He is the voice of Jesus to our hearts and he opens our understanding to spiritual things. John testified that though he baptized in water, the one that would come pointing to Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is now the baptizer with the Holy Spirit and he pours his spirit out upon hungry and thirsty lives. And I want to encourage you today in the name of Jesus, open up your heart for more of God's spirit because the Lord can pour him out upon you today in this place. John went on to say in in testifying about Jesus, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Jesus has all authority. The Bible says our times are in his hands. Our future are in his hands. Our destinies are in his hands. Then John said, verse number 36, For whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains in him. Listen, Listen to what John said. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If and when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and if and when we surrender our lives to Him and if and when we put our faith and trust in Him and if and when we believe that His shed blood provides eternal redemption and cleansing from our sin and if and when we ask Him to wash away our sins, Jesus comes into our lives as Lord and Saviour and King. We are reborn from above. We receive eternal life, both here and now, through the indwelling of the spirits and in eternity beyond the grave. Jesus said in his great high priestly prayer, John 17 verse 3, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But listen to the second part of that verse. It's very confronting. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. Our sinfulness and our sin makes us objects of God's wrath. And if we reject or neglect him, God's wrath remains on us and the prospect of judgment and punishment beyond the grave. But this is the great news. God's righteousness demands that something be done about our unrighteousness. And thanks be to God that through Jesus' suffering and death upon the cross, He bore the wrath of God for our sin in His own being. He paid the price that we could never pay. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 21, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. When we give our life to Jesus because of our connection with Him, that we are in Him, we are made righteous and God's wrath has been taken away. And this is what happens when you put your faith and trust 
in Jesus. In conclusion, in this message, we've been focusing upon some important words from John the Baptist, who came to testify that Jesus was the Messiah and he came to prepare the way for him. When Jesus began his his public ministry, people began to follow him. And John the Baptist's disciples became very jealous and asked John for his response. John had no such feeling and felt no rivalry toward Jesus at all. And from John's words, we have seen three ways that we can overcome jealousy. Number one, don't compare yourself with others. Don't go, oh, if only, oh, if only, or if only, or how come that happens to that person? Just recognize the grace that's on your own life and do what you are uniquely called and gifted to do. Number two, the second way to overcome jealousy, according to John's words here, is help others achieve what they are called to do. Serve others, equip and encourage others, live an others-centered life. And thirdly, we've seen, if we're to overcome jealousy, continue to testify to who Jesus is. Live a Jesus-centered life. Because when you're focused on Jesus, trivial jealousies mean nothing at all. But continue to do what John did and just declare who he is. He's from above. He has the spirit without limit. He's the one who gives eternal life. That should be the very vocabulary of our life. Let me conclude by saying this. As John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus coming as Messiah and Saviour, so we must prepare the way for Jesus' second coming by testifying about who He is and what He's done in our life. May we be like John the Baptist in our generation, preparing for the second coming, the great appearing of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Would you mind just closing your eyes with me, please, for a moment? We'll just take a moment to pray. Out of all that I've been saying today, what's the one thing that you need to do about what I've been preaching about today? What's the one thing that was the word of the Lord to you that just spoke to your heart? Let's just take a moment to learn these lessons from John the Baptist. Not comparing ourselves, but just being content with who we are, doing what God has called us to do, and of course, continuing to testify about who Jesus is. Give us the ears, Lord, that hear your spirit speak. Lord, we remind ourselves of the words of John the Baptist. I must decrease. He must increase. Help us all, Lord, to live lives like that, where, Lord, we just make way for the life and the love and the words of Jesus through us. I pray, Lord, all through this place and those watching online today, pray that you would touch their hearts and touch their lives. And Lord, let the application of this story of John, Lord, touch our hearts, that we would bear witness and continue to bear witness to who you are and what you've done. We thank you, Jesus, that you are from above.
and you are above all, and you are the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. You are the one who was and is and is to come. You are the giver of eternal life. Jesus, you're our everything. You are our life, and we honour you, and we bless you today, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.